Good evening, Dharma friends. Can you hear me? Great. So, tonight I would like to talk about the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path. Um, Like all of you, I've done a little bit of intensive practice and I have found it incredibly humbling. I don't know if any of you feel that way, that after looking at these heart minds for an extended period of time, it's like, what is going on in there? (laughs) Some of the things that we believe, you know, some of the things that we project, some of the ways, uh, you know, what it does, it allows us to look at some of our wrong views, right? It's like how we measure ourselves against others, our conceit. You know, we take great pride in being (coughs) the worst person in the room. And uh, at other times, the exact opposite. And after seeing that, You know, when I'm not in practice, when I'm not on retreat, uh, when I can remember, when it's probably most important, I actually don't believe anything I think. Because it's pretty crazy in there. So, um, I'm sure many of you have probably heard this uh, old, supposedly Cherokee grandfather tale. I have some friends who are medicine people with Cherokee and I asked them, is that really an old Cherokee tale? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll claim it, it's okay. (laughs) An old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. And it's a terrible fight and it is between two wolves. One is evil, he has anger, envy, Sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continues, the other one is good. He has wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth, and compassion, and faith. The same fight is going inside of you, my grandson, and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. I love these two quotes, so I know many of you have probably already heard them already, but I'd just like to hear them again too. And then there's the old indigenous grandfather, Ajahn Chah. He says something kind of similar. He says, This path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depth of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If Maga, the path is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. 
If the defilements that are if it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is weak and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dhamma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take their place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. Yeah, I mean, many of us have probably, boy, it's hot in here, (laughs) have seen just, you know, um, we've probably had aspects of our, um, this is me, this I am, this is mine, this is myself, um, attenuated a little, and we can see that or maybe we've taken a step and realized who's taking the step? You know, it's all happening by itself. You know, we we're able to see that sometimes. And when you see that, you really understand that it really is these two forces um, battling it out. This is what Marian Williamson says about that. The spiritual path is simply the journey of living our lives. Everyone is on a spiritual path, but most people just don't know it. At all times, we are cultivating something. At all times, we are taking refuge in something. And with this path, with these wonderful tools, with this way, we have a way to think about what we're actually taking refuge in any moment. So let's think about the metaphor of the path. So, in one version of this metaphor, the Buddha likens spiritual liberation to a long-forgotten city in an overgrown forest. And um, so what the, uh, you know, what the promising message is that it's actually possible to find that forest that there is a place that you can go and be free from suffering. There is a place where we can, you know, be liberated, be free from all of these uh, second arrows of our mind just wrenching, you know, being so unable to surrender to life as it is and to uh, understand the nature of life understand its true characteristics, to see reality clearly. So one way to think about this metaphor of the path and a very dense forest um, in the way of us finding this hidden city, this hidden um, place of refuge, is that all of our emotional and mental obstacles are that very dense forest. We have our own inner wilderness 
And it is, you know, our very own personal dangers and challenges. And what, one of the most profound, profound ways to think about this is that, you know, all of our suffering is something that we have to take responsibility for. The Buddhist path requires us to take responsibility for our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. That is pretty profound. Because we all think we're getting triggered by multiple things in the external world. And in many ways, you know, I mean, there is one way to think about it. We can think that that's true, that the external world has greed, hatred, and delusion. And this path isn't about paving the planet. We can't pave the planet. What we have to do is take responsibility for our own thoughts, attitudes, and actions and our reactivity to the way things really are. So the path metaphor you can think of that it uh, starts with our present state, however much dense underbrush and dense forest there is. That present state, we go through a cultivated state, which is what we're doing here very intensely purification and cultivation and that leads into a liberated state. It's not exactly that linear as we all know from experience but that's the path. Our present state through cultivating this heart-mind to some freedom. So the Eightfold Path the Eightfold Path is, as Marianne Williamson says, it's our daily life. I mean, after what you've seen, do you trust yourself not to be mindful? It's crazy. So the Eightfold Path. I personally don't think that there is any part of my life that is left out of it. You know, I have a full-time job and I work pretty hard and I have a family that I'm, you know, spend a fair amount of time with. Not a moment isn't part of cultivation and purification and finding out what's happening in this moment. And I'm sure we all know one way to think about the path is Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila Samadhi Panya, which is um, right action, right mental cultivation, and right wisdom. And actually, um, one of the most uh, meaningful things for me right now in my path is just taking a, a deeper look even at right view. I think it all starts with right view. Right view comes first. Right view comes first. Because in a way, you need right view to know what is wrong intention and what is right intention. 
What is wrong speech and what is right speech? What is wrong action and what is right action? What is wrong livelihood and right livelihood? And effort and mindfulness and concentration. So right view. Of course we know the elements of right view are understanding the law of kama, of cause and effect. This is very helpful, I think. For me, I find it very helpful to um, to know that anything that happens in the external world, it's complicated. There's a lot of causes and conditions that work to produce any particular external condition in this moment. And I don't, you know, have any control over any of that. All I have control over is how this mind, body is, heart is reacting to whatever is there in this moment. And that's a very meaningful thing. You know, one of my teachers who's probably sitting on the stage right now said, (laughs) the only control we have over the future is the quality of our mind in this moment, in this present moment. And, you know, that uh, makes me think a lot about karma. In this moment, you know, what are... uh, you know, what is going on in this heart-mind? So lo- the law of karma is one of the dimensions of right view. The understanding of impermanence is a really important um, dimension of right view. They say that, you know, many teachers say that seeing impermanence is one of the most important parts of this training that we're doing together right now. And I'm sure in the interviews and and everything that you've read, it's always, and in the Satipatthana, the Buddha says, look, look for the beginnings and endings of things. So the dimension of impermanence. And then, of course, the dimension of um, unsatisfactoriness or dukkha. I know I might have made some of you mad who came in to see me and you were just really dukkha out and not feeling very happy and maybe even crying. And I said, wow, congratulations. That's an insight. You know, that's one way to think about it opening to just the suffering of these conditioned lives. You know, each of the noble truths has a verb associated with it and dukkha is to be known. That's the uh, patience of knowing the truth, just being able to open to that. That's a transformative understanding it transforms us. And then of course on a deeper level, right view is also understanding the Four Noble Truths. 
you know, the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering. And that there is freedom. Freedom is possible. Freedom is offered to us by the Buddha. And by our... Well, he pointed out the way to freedom, but it is possible for all of us. It is... um, a possibility of our human existence. And the fact that we've all made it here to this room and we're hearing the Dharma, that's, you know, an excellent, excellent karma that we are actually on the path to that freedom. And then the understanding of how we cultivate those path factors, how we support and nurture those forces and make them as strong as they can to uh, battle it out with those defilements. So, the Buddha said, if we want to suffer less, it helps to notice that we are suffering. So, right view. to really settle back and to... So that right view uh, leads to the next path factor, which is right intention. Once we see that, once we understand the nature of our own suffering and that no one is able to, you know, provide any relief of that, any wholesome relief, We could take refuge, and we often do, in things that don't lead to any um, authentic well-being. But once we realize what the path is to some authentic well-being, that leads to right intention. That, you know, makes us want to look at, you know, what is the intention or motivation of my speaking right now? What is the motivation for... um, any of my acts in the world, my acts of body, speech, or mind. You know, what is fueling them? So the dimensions of right intention are intentions of renunciation, letting go. And at one level, it's understanding maybe um, theoretically, you know, where our true happiness is, but I think we're all seeing right now here just how um, unfulfilling a lot of conditioned things are. And that leads very naturally, from a wisdom perspective, this is a wisdom path factor, it leads to renunciation, letting go. And it's not a letting go because, you know, something you're turning away from that you like. It's letting go, realizing that your well-being is actually some, somewhere else. It's actually with right view, we're looking in the right direction. You know, we're walking in the right direction, you know, through that dense forest into where our real refuge and where our real well-being is. So right intention. The first dimension is renunciation or letting go. And then the intention of non-ill will.
We've all been really hurt in this life. I mean, and when you really take that in, it's like, do you want to be the cause of that for anyone else? It can be an excellent motivation for us to clean up our act. Just when we get hurt to think, wow, you know, that makes us want to do as much purification as we can to be a non-harming force in the planet, in the world. Just to walk through life and have, be a safe refuge for anybody right, to be a safe refuge for our relatives and our communities and the planet, and particularly our sanghas, to be safe. An intention of non- an intention of non-cruelty, and the opposites of that, of generosity, of metta and loving-kindness, of compassion. To have that be the intentions that we are uh, acting from in the world. How beautiful is that? Intention is one of those universal mental factors. There's an intention of everything that we do, but it's often not seen. And it's often, you know, or all the time, influenced by view about how we understand our place in the world and who we are. So that's why right intention is so, and right view are so tied together. Right intention and right view. Panya, the wisdom elements of the Eightfold Path. And then there's sila, the ethical path factors, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And you can see how sila is informed by panya, right? I mean, if we understand what uh, causes our own happiness and the happiness of others and what causes our own suffering and the suffering of others, we understand the importance of right conduct, sila. So this is a little story or simile from the Samyutta Nikaya. Just as the person mired in quickstand cannot help another until he has himself reached firm ground, our ability to help others depends chiefly on keeping our own balance. As the flight attendant tells us each time we board a plane, one must don one's own oxygen mask before trying to help others do so. Looking out for oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others? By looking after oneself, by practicing mindfulness, developing it, and making it grow. How does one look after oneself? 
by looking after others, by patience, non-harming, loving kindness, and caring. So those are uh, Sila and Samadhi together. They go absolutely together. So in right speech we know are refraining, refraining from false speech, just from straight up lying is not good. Refrain, reframing from slanderous speech or speaking ill of someone without um, just speaking ill of people. Refraining from harsh speech not, you know, being too adamant or um, aggressive in one's speech. And reframing from idle chatter. Actually, I know this wonderful nun in Seattle who once told me, I asked her, why did you become a nun? And she said, because I didn't want people just to talk stupid stuff to me. I thought that was one of the wisest things I had ever heard. (laughs) That's a good reason to become a nun, actually. (laughs) So, wise speech. And that one is such a wonderful one. Did you hear the um, heretical thing that one teacher said the other day? (laughs) That if you practice wise speech all the time, You could probably even, uh, that was one way to practice deep mindfulness and maybe wouldn't even need the cushion. I know for me, you know, I will take all the help I can get. So the cushion is important, but actually there is, you know, we are so lucky that there are out in the world opportunities and practices specifically for right speech. Like... um, Insight dialogue and other people who are teaching what it means to actually do, uh, be mindful of speech in the moment. Um, we had a, a teacher here, one of our classmates, who is, um, that's what she teaches mo- mostly is insight dialogue or right speech. And I was discussing with her just about what to say and what not to say in one situation. and. You know, it was so brilliant the way she said, you know, you might say things that aren't necessarily useful in the moment. You know, my thought was, oh, yeah, we have to be transparent 100% of the time. We always have to be transparent about what our motivation is and how we view things. And she said, really? Do you really need to do that? You know, sometimes it's uh, wise to think about how much transparency is needed in a moment. And that was just really uh, pivotal for me. So I think that there is a lot for us to learn about right speech. Of course, here we're practicing no speech. And, um, you know, we should be careful, particularly in the transition, that we are keeping to that precept of right speech and knowing where we can talk and uh, where it is not going to, you know, harm anyone or or disrupt anyone's um, practice. Though we're all responsible for ourselves, as we know. So right speech, right action. And we know what those are. 
refraining, refraining, refraining from killing other beings, refraining, refraining from taking what is not given, and uh, not indulging in sexual misconduct. When we're on retreat, those are pretty obvious. They're pretty obvious how we uh, engage with those and how we keep those precepts. We're so lucky here in our mothership of Western Theravada that everything is set up for us to really keep those precepts really well. And out in the world it you know, might be a little bit more difficult or a little bit more complex. The next uh, dimension of ethical conduct, right livelihood, absolutely is pretty complex in, in this you know, world we live in. The dimensions of right livelihood we know are not dealing in weapons, not dealing in living beings, slavery, or raising animals for slaughter, human trafficking, which unfortunately is still alive and well in our Western world here. Not working in uh, production of living beings and animals like meat production. Not making or selling intoxicants or poisons and then abstaining from any activity that actually breaks the precepts. This is sila. This is our, um, the um, training that we take in order to uh, be a safe place, a refuge for, for our communities in the world. Some of these things out in the world can be complicated. And I don't think that we're being asked to figure it out um, absolutely. And you know, one thing I'm pretty sure that we're not being asked is that there is one answer that fits all situations. One thing I loved about the Buddha was that one of the things I love about the practice is his um, advice not to engage in speculative thought. He said, why are you engaged in a speculative thought? What does that have to do with the end of your suffering in this moment? So all of you who are thinking out there, <laughs> that's a good thing to remember. But what I take from that advice also is that every single situation is new. Every single situation has to have us bring our panya and our sila and our samadhi to that moment to see what is right action in this moment. You know, we can't decide from, uh, we can't decide from Barry what it means to be right action in people's lives anywhere in the world because we really don't understand the karma of that moment. How that shows up for us, you know, will be different in, it, in every moment. So I think that we need to just, um, you know, practice checking, doing our cultivation and our um, purification 
to, um, you know, as we're doing right now, we're seeing those uh, doubts in our mind and the greed in our mind and the aversion, you know, the self-aversion and the aversion to others. And we're seeing the, the mana. We're seeing this I am, this is mine, this is myself. And, you know, trying to see the view that is uh, perpetuating those thoughts and those actions and those words. And we decondition them as well as we can. And then in any given moment when we're asked to decide what ethical conduct looks like, it'll depend on that. It'll depend on how much work we have done for purification and how much we have been able to um, strengthen the um, factors of generosity and wisdom and non-harming, loving kindness and compassion. That will decide our ethical conduct in that moment. So there are some uh, some things in the sutta, some things that we can expect about uh, right action and some of the things that we can expect from keeping the precepts. It's said that uh, we will become lovable. If we're safe and we keep the precepts, we will become lovable. We will be free from self-blame. So it'll really clear up, you know, that hiri otapa, if we um, really have fear of wrongdoing and regret for wrongdoing, that's not, you know, selfishly held, but really is a consideration of, you know, how safe we are in the world and what we're offering around us. Uh, You know, we become free of self-blame. Wise people won't gossip or yell at us. That's what the Sutta says. So we won't be yelled at by wise people. (laughs) We won't go to jail. Well, that's probably true, but not always true, I think. (laughs) And we create the karma and conditions for good things to happen to us. And then there are some worldly, as we know, supports for breaching the precepts as well. You know, thoughts like, wow, I want to close the best business deal ever without a consideration for, you know, what that is, uh, what that means to people's lives. Or maybe the advice or the um, observation, you hold your alcohol well. You know, that sometimes we take refuge in things that you know, for for the moment might um, make us relaxed, but absolutely don't hold any any opportunity for authentic well-being. So when we have wisdom, when we have right view, we can see that our sila and our... um, our ethical conduct is really purified and it's really strengthened. And then once we have um, good ethical conduct, that allows us to work on our mental development, our samadhi. 
It helps us work on our samadhi. And we know that the, uh, pack, uh, the path factors of um, mental de- development or samadhi are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So right effort. Um, I think we've had a couple really excellent um, discussions of right effort on the retreat. That's essentially to avoid and prevent the arising of unwholesome states, to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen, to cultivate um, wholesome states which haven't yet arisen, and to, when we see them in our minds, to, to continue to work with them to, you know, work to maintain them. And then right mindfulness, it's what everyone's been talking about the whole time. It's what I'm sure um, when you meet with, and when we meet with yogis and retreat and talking amongst ourselves, it's the four foundations of mindfulness. The four frames of reference, as they're called. Mindfulness of the body, of feeling tone, of... Uh, mental states and of dhammas. And then right concentration. One-pointedness of mind, samadhi. The, be, the ability to, uh, to discern, you know, what the, what the uh, noun is that we're looking at in our heart-mind in the moment and the quality of the mind that's actually holding that. And... Um, I want to read this little one-line quote. How is effort fruitful? Right effort. A practitioner, when not caught up, does not get caught up in suffering, and not infatuated with pleasure, does not give up appropriate pleasure. Does not give up appropriate pleasure. I think that that is something that we all have to hold that. I think um, we heard uh, Biko Anayo say in a recent podcast, I think, that the path to enlightenment is through ever uh, subtle states of joy and fulfillment. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's really clear what is um, wholesome pleasure and what is unwholesome pleasure. And I think that, you know, we, it's fine to actually cultivate the bliss of meditation and the happiness of meditation. And we can set an intention to, to uh, awaken joy. We can set an intention to build up that, uh, that um, part of um, right samadhi in order to give us um, incentives and motivation for continuing on the path. You know, it starts with mindfulness, to know, uh, to let go of unwholesome states and to have the calmness of mind to actually get some samadhi and some strength of mind, to practice gratitude and gratitude reflections. How lucky are we all to be here? 
I'm sure we all have had major loss in our life and major grief. Of course we have, we're human. We have, and we have a huge amount to be grateful for. A huge about, amount. And reflection on, on that can be a source of real joy for us. To really, with our mindfulness, hold our faith, hold the awe of what we're seeing in this practice. To really hold that with mindfulness. Wow, awe is like this. Faith is like this. Confidence is like this. It feels so good. And then even during difficult times, I remember one of the most surprising experiences I had once I, um, once I um, you know, felt like I was really on the path was having grief or something really difficult to rise, but hold it in a field of joy. It is so interesting to feel that. Just to hold suffering our own or someone else's or the world's and just feel it being held in another, in, you know, a space where we can just really open to it and bear witness to it. You know, a lot of suffering, we can't do anything but bear witness. And, you know, that's all, you know, we ourselves, we can ask of ourselves or others can ask of us sometimes is just to bear witness to that. But to be able to do that in a field of joy and a field of gratitude and love, that's a huge gift to ourselves and to others as well. Another aspect of awakening joy is having integrity. The integrity of, you know, the uh, sila aspect of the path factors. Once we've strengthened those, you know, it would never even come to mind to lie, cheat, and steal in order to get what we want. Because the things that we would want from that perspective we know aren't going to bring us the happiness that we think they would anyway. The joy of letting go of all of that. The joy of having self-respect. You know, it's amazing. Having compassion for others absolutely starts with having compassion for ourselves. You know, I was um, sharing that uh, benefactor compassion practice, and that practice gave me so many wonderful boundaries. We need boundaries of what it's appropriate for other people to ask of us and expect of us, and what it's not appropriate. And with compassion for ourselves, you know, just like the Acrobat Sutta, we take care of ourselves and that's the way we take care of others. Compassion. So that is it, these path factors, these forces in our lives. And then right concentration, of course. Being able to, being able to not, or to hold or gather the energy. You know, one way to think about it is that we are just energy systems. And whenever we have actions or thoughts, it's like a little dispersion of energy. When we can, you know, gather our attention and focus our attention and rest in a relaxed way in the present, whether through continuity of mindfulness, just always knowing what is being known in this moment, 
You know, something is always being known and mindfulness is knowing what is being known in this moment through continuity or through other concentration is from just resting the attention in one object and uh, collecting the energy that would otherwise be dispersed by a lot of discursive thought. And once we have that energy, once we have built up that, that energy, sometimes it actually feels like pressure. You know, it can feel a little bit like pressure and sometimes we want to let go of that pressure, but it's good to maintain that pressure because we know that that concentration acts to magnify our experience for us to see more clearly. And we can see at much more subtle levels what our intentions are and what our view is and what view we have in our mind that's informing our intentions and determining whether we're going to act in an ethical uh, way in this moment. So, the samadhi path factors. We work to strengthen those as well. Sila samadhi panya. Those forces, we're strengthening them. We are You can think of all of our negative emotions, all of our struggles as manure on our wholesome path factors. We can offer them up with patience and with seeing clearly, wow, that's a lot of suffering. Just think of it as manure on our path factors to strengthen them. So what, are, what actually helps us develop path factors? What are the internal conditions for the development of path factors? Uniso Manasikara. Seeing things as they truly are. Directing attention to the roots of things. Both both seeing clearly, seeing clearly with strong mindfulness and also wise reflection. So having a lot of clear mindfulness, strong mindfulness, and knowing how to reflect, how to bring in small elements of wisdom to help it inform and strengthen what we're seeing in the moment. <coughs> Some of my favorites are not I, not mine, not self. So that is a absolutely necessary condition for the development of path factors internally, wise attention, mindfulness. And then externally, what are the external conditions for the development of the path factors. Uh, 
spiritual friendship, sangha. It's not a little thing. Sangha is not a little thing. We all know that story, I'm sure, of, uh, I think it was Ananda saying to the Buddha, Buddha isn't spiritual friendship, isn't good friendship half of the holy life? Isn't it half of the holy life? And the Buddha said, no, Ananda, no, don't say that, don't say that. Spiritual friendship is all of the holy life. Sangha. So I will end with a few little sayings. I will read a few little quotes. Just as if a hen had eight, 10, or 12 eggs, that she covered rightly, warmed rightly, and incubated rightly, even though this wish did not occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Still, it is possible that the chicks would break through the shells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. In the same way, when a disciple of the noble ones is consummate in virtue in this way, guards the doors to his sense facilities in this way, knows moderation in eating in this way, is devoted to wakefulness in this way, is endowed with seven qualities in this way, and abstains at will without trouble or difficulty, the four jhanas that constitute heightened awareness and a pleasant abiding in the here and now in this way, then he is called the disciple of the noble ones who follows the practice for one it for one in training, whose eggs are unsoiled, who is capable of breaking out, capable of awakening, capable of attaining the supreme rest from the yoke. So, let's just sit for a minute. May the positive energies of our sila, samadhi, and panya, these forces in our life, may they be the cause of well-being and happiness and awakening for all beings in all directions, including ourselves. <laughs>